Today's Bible reading is from John 5, 1 to 18, the healing at the pool. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Hi, I'm Brian Harris, if you don't know me, service pastor at large here. And maybe you're asking two questions as I'm up here. I can kind of anticipate those questions. So what's he doing in shorts today? And why has he got this kind of plaster on his leg? And I, in case you can't see it, there, there, there it is over there. Uh, and um, the answer is quite simple. Kind of went for a routine a skin checkup, and uh, the doctor said, well, there are a couple of skin cancers there that need to be cut out. Uh, none, don't, don't get too alarmed, none of them terribly nasty ones, uh, but the one was right in my shin, and being right in my shin, uh, it was moderately deep, and they had to uh, do a skin graft that went with it, and I don't know if you had a skin graft before, but uh, if it's on your lower leg, apparently it takes just a little bit of time to heal, uh, because blood supply is a bit poor, and so the doctor said to me, Brian, for the next, for the first two weeks, you've got to primarily have a life that is about the BBC. And I said, what do you mean the BBC? And he said, bed, bathroom, chair. And when you sit in the chair, you've got to have your leg elevated. And basically, the, he said to me, you can't really do very much, you can't walk very much, you can't really do anything for, for two weeks. So that sounded pretty torturous to me. And uh, mostly that period of time has passed. But if you were to say to me, were there any consolations during that time? I would say, actually, yes, there were. 
because my wonderful wife, Rosemary, who's sitting there, second row from the front, and not wanting to be identified, uh, <laughs> said, you know, in those opening days, that if I needed anything, I just need to take this little bell and ring it. I, I had it next to the bed with me. And, uh, and so it was great. And the, I mean, the, that first day I got back, you know, I could ring the bell, and she would be there in a moment, you know, uh, cookies and, uh, you know, tea, love. Uh, or, you know, do you want your pillows fluffed? Or, uh, you know, should I mop your brow? Something like that. Uh, it was really nice. Now, now, I had thought that she might do that for the next two weeks, but she had work on, unfortunately, and she'd leave me with the bell and say, so just ring it while I'm at work, uh, and I won't be here and I won't answer it at all, but uh, it was nice to think that it was kind of there. Now, now, why am I starting in this slightly self-indulgent way, just talking about myself? Well, because we're doing this Encountering Jesus series, and we come to John chapter 5, and in John chapter 5, we read about this man who's been lame for 38 years. And uh, Jesus goes and asks him this really rather bizarre question. Uh, he's at a place where miracles are supposed to take place, uh, because once in a while, uh, in Bethesda, uh, this, this place, uh, the waters would get disrupted for a period of time, and if you were the first one who actually got there, then you were, you were healed. And that, that was really very nice if you were the first one in. This man had been waiting there for 38 years, and a miracle had never happened to him. And, and Jesus comes along one Sabbath day, says to him, so... Would you, would you like to be healed? Would, do you want to be healed? And you think, seriously, Jesus, that's like such a stupid question. I mean, I know you, Jesus. I know you're extremely bright. I know you're the Messiah and all those things. But uh, that's dumb to the point of insensitivity. I mean, of course I want to be healed. Why do you think I've spent the last 38 years of my life just waiting here, just waiting to be able to be the first one? But, you know, I actually have a very tidy excuse for why that never happens because, unfortunately, uh, as you see, there are lots of other people who are here. And uh, one of them always gets to the water ahead of me. Some of them have people to help them. I don't. I've never got there first. I'm not healed. 38 years later, I'm still waiting, hoping that this miracle might take place, but it ain't happened yet. And Jesus looks at him and says, take up your mat, stand up, walk, and the man is healed. And, and that's great, but you know that there's one thing that's not going to happen anymore. And that one thing that's not going to happen anymore is that there ain't going to be any more bell ringing. Because, you know, once he's healed, you know, all that kind of, yes, dear, no, dear, three bags full, dear, you poor thing, you know, we're so sorry for you, all that suddenly goes away. No more excuses. And, and so usually when I've looked at this miracle, I've looked at it and tried to understand this question of Jesus. So do you want to get healed? I've, I've used it and thought of it in terms of a so... So actually when Jesus comes to us and heals us, we have to be willing to give up our excuses. We have to recognize that sometimes we take great comfort in our excuses and that when Jesus genuinely works a deep work of healing in us, it's goodbye to those excuses. And I think that that is a very valid reading of this passage, John chapter 5. But I think that there is another way in which you can read it, and I'm wanting us to explore this today. And that is John chapter 5 as an exploration of what I would call the dance between order and chaos. The dance between order and chaos that you find in the Bible. And it's a dance where if you have an ordered life, Jesus perpetually tips you into chaos. And if you have a chaotic life, Jesus brings order. Uh, because there's supposed to be this creative dance between order and chaos that goes on the whole time. Now, now you may say, it sounds a bit obscure. I'm not really sure what you're talking about there. Well, well, actually, the, the very start of the Bible starts with this dance between order and chaos. If you think about Genesis chapter 1, 
we're told that the Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. It's hovering over the deep, and there's the sense of this chaotic nothingness that is there. And the first three days are about bringing order. So if you recall the miracles that take, or the creative acts of God, in Genesis chapter 1, what happens first? God separates, what does he separate? He separates uh, the darkness from the light. So initially, there's, there's all this, this confused realm, light and darkness all together. Day one, God says, right, bring some order here. Here's dark, there's light, let's separate the two of them. Uh, day two, what happens? Well, it's like just all this water. Uh, and, and God says, okay, day two, we separate the waters from the sky. We now have this orderly sphere. We not only have light separated from darkness, we have water separated from the sky, so they're separate spheres. Day three, what happens? Well, just this water everywhere, God says, no, that's no good. We need some land that comes in the midst of this. And so from the waters, there's land, and they separate, and there is order all over again. And, and then you get to day four, and in day four, you have an empty sky, and it gets filled with the stars and the moon and the sun and everything else. And then day five, it, it brings order there. Day five, you have the sea that suddenly gets filled with sea animals and you get order and something in the midst of the sphere that's being created. And then day six, you get animals created and then, oh my goodness, so, so this is all about bringing order from the chaos that had been there, this beautiful ordered world. And then right at the tail end of it, you get this little introduction that God is a God of order who then tips things into chaos because what does God do as the very last thing? He makes humans. He makes humans. Now, up until now, everything that God makes has no free will. It's just going to do exactly what it's told. But when God makes humans, they're made with free will. They're made with that, we're told, they're made in the very image of God, that they are like God. And what a risk that actually is. So, so, so what happens in that opening chapter is this, there's been chaos, order comes in, and at the end of the order, God says, okay, this is a little bit too stable. Thank you very much. Let's just bring a little bit of chaos here. Let's create humans with free will. And let's see where this experiment actually goes. And oh, the chaos that quickly creates results as humans rebel against God. And you know the ongoing story there. So, so the Bible begins with the sense of God is the God who dances between order and chaos. Now, now let's use this frame and let's, let's look at John chapter 5 and see if we use this frame, how does John chapter 5 look to us? And uh, let's start off first with this man. So here's this man, as I said, uh, there he is. You've got to feel sorry for him. For, for 38 years, he has been, he's been paralyzed. He's been lying there. He actually has a very ordered life. I mean, there are almost no responsibilities. He has to lie there. Other people look after his food. Other people care for him. Other people make sure that everything's okay for him. It's, it's extraordinarily dull, but then that's the whole point of the dance between order and chaos. I mean, a very ordered life is very ordered. It's nice, but it is a little bit dull after a while. And, and so he has this extraordinarily ordered life. And Jesus comes and says to him, do you want to be made well? Do you actually want to be made well? Do you realize that if I make you well, I will tip your life into chaos for you? Because it's going to go in quite a different direction, and there are going to be things that are required from you that haven't been required for, well, for 38 years. They've not been required from you. Now, now, now don't say 38 years too quickly. Don't say 38 years too quickly. Let's remember 
that in the ancient world, the dead average lifespan was somewhere between 32 to 34 years. So this man had actually been lame for longer than most people lived. You know, not, not granted, those stats are a little bit dodgy because so many people died when they were young that it slanted that a, a little bit. Huge numbers died before they were 20, and then if you made it to 20, you quite likely made it three to 60. But overall, uh, lifespan somewhere between 32 to 34. So at 38 years, this man had been, uh, had been lame for longer than most people were ever alive. Uh, he had been doing nothing all these years. We, we, we don't know whether he was born that way. We don't know whether maybe this happened during his teens. But what does life look like to suddenly have to assume responsibility after 38 years? Well, well, here's the thing. He picks up his mat and he walks and immediately, I mean, it's like immediate, just, just notice this. He has done no work for 38 years. And on the first day he works, it just turns out that it happens to be a day on which work is illegal. And he's busted for it right away. Because did you notice? Uh, you, you know, in terms of Jewish thinking, if you carry your mat, if you're carrying something, that's working. And this was a Sabbath day. And the Jewish Gestapo, the religious leaders, are there right away, and they say, and what do you think you're doing? This is a Sabbath day, and you're carrying your mat. You have no right to do that. Uh, you're, you're in serious trouble, mate. You have just violated these laws, and our role is to enforce these laws. Well, thank you. you know, can't I just go back and be lame all over again and have people bring me food? I'm kind of being confronted straight away that, uh, that actually it's not okay what I'm doing. I've got to answer for myself. And uh, how does the man respond? He immediately becomes defensive. He says, well, well, well actually, you know, don't, don't, don't blame me. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. It was the man who healed me. He told me I had to do this. I didn't, I didn't actually realize these were the rules. Blame him. And they say, who was the man? And, and remarkably, if you actually read the passage, the passage tells us that the man says, pass, I don't know. He actually hasn't even found out that it was Jesus at the stage. I didn't even know that. But as the story goes on, we, we're told that later Jesus comes back to this man. And what does Jesus say to this man? He comes back to him and he says, you know, so, so I'm the one who healed you. Go and sin no more that something worse does not befall you. In other words, mate, no one's making excuses for you anymore. You're now fully accountable for your life. If you keep on sinning, something really bad will happen. Don't blame everyone else for your activities like you even blamed me for healing you. Don't, don't do that. Take a life of responsibility. Honor God. Live differently. You said you wanted to be made well, and you are. I know that it's a bit chaotic, and I know that that's the way it is. And what happens from there? The man goes away and rushes back to the religious leaders and says, it was Jesus, it was Jesus, he was the one who did the miracle, so stop blaming me, stop asking me while I was working on the Sabbath, you know, tell him, you know, it, it's a fascinating thing. There's a little bit of chaos that's come into his life. It's a very different life. I said, let's read the passage with a frame of order and chaos, and let's actually do that. Now, now, now quite often when we read Bible passages, we, we notice the key person to who something's happening to, and obviously this man is the key player in this passage. But if you really want to get something from Scripture, look at some of the other players that you might just notice, but then kind of kick to one side. Because as you look at this passage, it's really quite interesting that uh, the religious leaders play quite a role as well. 
So let's, let's kind of bring them into focus for a while, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were there. And let's look at them and their journey from order to chaos, their journey from order to chaos. And, and you may say, and I'm not quite sure what you're getting at, but, but, but just bear with me. For a moment, just, just pretend that I'm a religious leader and I'm one of the religious leaders back there. And I'm wanting to explain to you, because I'm sure your question is this. You saw a miracle take place. You saw a man who had been lame for 38 years, able to walk. And the best you could come up with was to say, yeah, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath day? You're not a very nice person, thank you very much. I mean, don't you think that when you read that passage? Isn't that the way you approach it? So let me try and look at order and chaos, and let me try and say, whoa, you're not understanding some things here. Because, you see, I'm actually a religious leader. And uh, I know that you don't think I'm very nice, and I know that you kind of think that Jesus is wonderful and that what he did was lovely and all that. And, uh, I mean, miracles are very pleasant, thank you very much. But, but, but you've got to recognize that us religious leaders had some things far, far bigger at stake. I mean, come on. At the end of the day, this was just one man, one man whose life was almost gone. Uh, but for us, we had this enormous, enormous ongoing struggle. And our struggle was this. We had been conquered by Rome. And Rome had allowed an uneasy peace to come and to settle amongst us. But uh, us Jewish religious leaders, please give us credit. We were the go-betweens, the mediators between Roman authorities and the people. And the reason we had peace was because we had this really orderly existence, we had this very clear law, we enforced it absolutely, the Romans knew what would happen, nothing ever got broken, and provided life went like that, we actually had a very good time. So, so when you're all nasty about us religious leaders, just remember that ordinary people had us to thank that their lives, by and large, were fine, even though they were un under Roman rule. No, you're all like Jesus is wonderful, but kind of look at this from my perspective. Answer me a couple of questions. So, question number one. When does this miracle take place? When does this miracle take place? Uh, did you notice? Oh, we're told there. Uh, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. That mean anything to you? That mean anything to you? Come on, come on. I'm a religious leader. Um, you've got to see things from my perspective. One of the Jewish festivals. Do you know what happened during the Jewish festivals? I mean, there weren't that many of them. But when there was a Jewish festival, Jerusalem increased in population by 25 times its normal population size. There were people everywhere. It was just a buzz with, with, with people and with Romans and with like, something's going to happen here. So if you're going to perform a miracle, please you know, why choose that busy period where it's going to cause just so much comment? I said, when did this miracle take place? So it take, took place during a Jewish religious festival when there were people just everywhere here in Jerusalem. But number two, what day did it take place? Ha, Sabbath, Sabbath day. Thank you very much. I hope you realize how significant that comment is because this miracle could quite easily have taken place on a wet Wednesday. Uh, you know, why does it have to take place on the Sabbath day? On the Sabbath day, there are all kinds of rules that do not apply on other days of the week. Do not tell me that after 38 years, it would have made one iota of difference to this man if, if you know, Jesus had performed the miracle then. Uh, 
So, so this is a maximum publicity, maximum controversial kind of miracle that's taking place. Everyone is there. Everyone is watching. It's on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus tell? Answer me this, this question. What does Jesus say, say to the man? He said, well, Jesus told the man to walk, didn't he? Yes, that's correct, told the man to walk. You know what? If he had just told the man to walk, I would have said, high five, wonderful. Because, you know, on the Sabbath day, you are allowed to walk. I mean, not allowed to walk very far, but you are allowed to walk. But is that all that Jesus said to the man? What did Jesus actually say to the man? Jesus said what? Take up your mat and walk. Oh my goodness, thank you very much, Jesus. Take up your mat, that is work. Why did the man have to take up his mat? Do you think us Jews are a bunch of thieves? Do you think it was going to be stolen if you just left it there? There was absolutely no need for him to pick up his mat at that point in time. It would have been perfectly safe, and he could have come back the next day to pick it up. In fact, if anyone else had picked it up, I mean, it's not just that they would have committed the crime of theft, they would have been doing work as well. So it was going to be absolutely fine. He didn't need to do the work then. He just didn't. Jesus could have just said, stand up and walk. Fine. No problem. But take up your mat. You see, Jesus, don't, don't say it's just a Jesus meek and mild. She's very provocative. You know, here it is. And everyone is watching. I mean, this wasn't a wet Wednesday. This was festival time, Sabbath day, you Jews, you religious leaders, you bring order, we challenge the law that you bring. And the Romans are watching, and everyone knew that we had to do something. So what does Jesus do to us? Well, what Jesus does to us is he plunges us into the role of, you be the ugly person. You be the horrible religious leader who's got a rush in there. It's, it's like, I mean, like, I mean, some of you, uh, you know, when your kids are naughty, do, do, do you sometimes as parents, you know, you've got one bad cop, good cop, uh, and, you know, one parent's always nice and kind and tidies up everything, but one of you's got to be this horrible disciplinarian. Well, thank you very much, Jesus. You made us be the bad cop. You made us be the people who everyone will think poorly of. Uh, so, yeah, our lives get plunged into chaos by this because everyone looks at us and says, you didn't celebrate a miracle. And I just say that miracle could have taken place the next day, and I wouldn't have argued. I would have been very celebratory. But there were political implications in what he was doing. He was basically saying, the law doesn't matter, your Sabbath laws doesn't matter, and that put us at risk with the Romans, and no, I did not appreciate it one bit. For once, stop saying, wonderful Jesus, and say, oh, you poor religious leaders, because I really am a very nice person, and I really would have liked the miracle if it had just been done on a different day. Interesting. Do you think there's a case there? I don't know. How did you feel about the Harry and uh, Meghan interviews? Uh, like, they were, I kind of think it's like that kind of case. Harry and Meghan, how, how many of you are Harry, and you don't have to tell me how many of you are on Harry and Meghan's side and how many of you are on, on kind of for the throne, but uh, it does divide a little. There are two sides to every story, aren't there? And there's a side here that I think if you were there, and maybe if you remember that actually in the year 70 AD, the order, the disorder in Israel suddenly became so great that the Romans came and, and smashed everything and destroyed the temple and it's never been rebuilt. Maybe when we remember that, you can understand where they were coming from. They were just afraid of the disorder, the chaos that Jesus was causing. Do, do you see, into their ordered world, Jesus came and said, even in that order, 
you're not able to celebrate a miracle if just some little parts of it aren't the way that you want them to be. Think about that. And for the man who had been unwell for 38 years, he had to think about what it meant to live independently and for the religious leaders. It meant, oh my goodness, we have to think about what genuine love means and what our little status quo means and about whether we're willing to change. Third frame. Did you notice that as we, we read this passage, we're told, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the, the Jewish festivals. Uh, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. <laughs> I've said, notice everyone in the passage. You know, if you can read the Bible well, notice everyone in the passage. So don't just notice the man who's healed. Notice the many people who were paralyzed who used to be there. So imagine yourself as one of them, and here's a miracle, but you know what? It's not your miracle, is it? I mean, this man's been there for 38 years. And, and don't you, as you lie there, think, how very nice for him, and my life seriously sucks. I mean, it just doesn't happen for me, does it? I mean, weren't there other people who had been there for ages, wanting to be first in the water, and they never got there? Weren't there people for whom, like, it just wasn't going right? How do you cope? If you're watching a miracle, but it's someone else's miracle, and you were really watching that, wanting that miracle for yourself, how does that feel? Do you like have lots of hope? Or do you feel they're special, but I'm not? Or God isn't really just? Or I mean, what do you feel at that moment? And don't you sometimes feel like that? I mean, haven't you sometimes prayed for an amazing job and then a good friend got it? Or maybe your own marriage, you've been longing for ages that some of the issues will get sorted out and, and they're just not and someone else's marriage flourishes. Or maybe you're really unwell and you pray for healing and it doesn't happen for you and then you hear that it's happened for someone else. How, where does that actually leave you? It tips you into a little bit of chaos, doesn't it? I mean, I mean there's the order of no miracles happen, but then there's the chaos of actually miracles do happen and God does do things, and, but it didn't happen for me. Struck me very forcefully in the first year, or very early on when I was pastoring my, my first church back in Stellenbosch. Uh, we used to, in, in the nighttime service, we used to have an informal sharing time. And it was lovely and it was very warm. We had lots of students from the university, Stellenbosch University town. They'd come along there and, and we'd have like a bit of singing and a bit of people would share what's going on in their lives and uh, a bit of teaching. And uh, one nighttime service, Justine, who was a regular there, came in and we were just opening up our sharing time. Anyone would share what God's been doing in their life? And she, and she jumps up immediately and says, says she, she's come to the service a bit late, but she, the moment sharing time begins, she, she jumps up and she says, I just want to thank God because my mother's just had this amazing, amazing miracle happen to her. She was in an accident today. Uh, she was just driving along, and when she was driving along, the, 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 there was this truck, and they had like all these poles in the back of it, and one of these poles just shot, shot off the back. Don't know how it happened, but it did. Pole just shot off, and it just smashed through a windscreen, and her car went completely out of control, just skidded everywhere, and suddenly came to a halt. And when she got out, she actually saw that the she, she wasn't in control of it. It was completely out of control, but but she saw where she had stopped, and was literally you know, a matter of inches from a steep cliff. If it had gone off, she would have been killed. And she looked through the tire tracks and where the car had spun out of control, and there was a major power, power uh, pole there that she had missed by a matter of inches. 
And she realized that, you know, though this accident had happened, God was so obviously in control every step of the way, and she was safe. And, and I just want to give thanks to this extraordinary God who saves his people and who saved my mother from this accident today because she's actually absolutely fine other than a little bit shaken. Now, normally, if someone had shared that at one of our services, we would have been, high five, great, hallelujah, this is amazing, this is incredible, we're really so pleased. But there was just like this, this silence, really subdued silence that day because earlier on I'd had to announce that a very, and Justine hadn't heard this, she had come in late, but I'd had to announce that a very, very dearly loved member of our congregation had been killed in a car accident. Killed after going to visit her, the, uh, her, her grandchild who had just been born that week, driving back just randomly killed. And you could see in everyone's kind of faces like so God did that for Justine's mom but didn't do it for Francine why why what what happens when you're not the person that the miracle happens to and, and you see the this passage starts that way Jesus goes to a place where there are many people many people who are bl the blind the lame the paralyzed and he chooses one and he heals one and all those who aren't there are plunged into this little bit of chaos of, why wasn't it me? Why wasn't it me? And I guess the answer is that Jesus does it to demonstrate that miracles happen. But some miracles are going to wait for the end of time. And some of us who know that we have to wait for the end of time for things to be sorted out, that can be quite hard to hold on to that. And it can be an invitation to go into, I must just trust. I must just trust. I can't. I can't, God might not do it now. Of course, my God might do it. I might, might say, be, be, be patient, it will come, it will come another time. But for many of us, God is just saying, I'm tipping you into the realm where you have to wait for the end. Order and chaos. Chaos for the man for whom the miracle happened. Chaos for religious leaders. Chaos for the people who weren't healed. Chaos for Jesus. Chaos for Jesus. You know, if you go through John's Gospel and you read the first four chapters, you find that Jesus' ministry had been going quite well. Uh, by and large, everything's going very smoothly. He's done some miracles. They've been greatly appreciated by everyone. It's a really, really nice scenario. But with this miracle, for the first time, the religious leaders come to Jesus and say, so why did you do that? You knew that it was the Sabbath. You knew it was a religious festival. You knew everyone was watching. You know that the Romans are watching. Why, why did you do that? And Jesus defends himself and says, my father is always at work, and I must also work. And oh my goodness, the Pharisees say, your father is always at work. Do you mean God is your father? You are saying you are the Messiah, and we're told that from that day on, they start to think about how they will kill Jesus. From that day on, they start to think how they will kill Jesus because of this miracle. You see, Jesus brings chaos to the man who's healed, but it's a really constructive chaos. It's a chaos of growth. He brings real growth potentially for the religious leaders as they have to think again. He potentially brings real growth for those who aren't healed as they have to examine their motives and think more deeply. For himself, he brings the chaos of the cross, the death he dies on our behalf. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it? You start and you think it's just a little miracle, but you realize that it's the pattern of how God works in the world, that God always brings growth in our lives. And I wonder, 
you, for some of you, maybe at the moment, maybe some of you, your life is just a little too ordered. Are you ready to say, God, it's okay. I can handle a bit of chaos. Or maybe you've got a lot of chaos and maybe God says, okay, I'll bring order into that chaos. But in this dance between order and chaos, God always tries to bring us closer to him, helps us to understand more of what his love for us means. And God is the one who always pays the highest price. The real chaos came for Jesus, and it went all the way to Calvary. And in your own life, whether it be order or chaos that God is wanting to tip you into this week, be open, embrace it, and accept what God brings for you, and be reassured of this that the chaos for Jesus is much greater because his love is greater and his love always works on our behalf. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us our excuses, the time when we are not well and yet we in some ways actually are quite happy about that and we live very ordered and complacent lives. Thank you that you tip us out of order into chaos and that you invite us to grow. Lord, some of us feel that our lives are chaos at the moment and we long for new order. Thank you that you bring that. Thank you that for those of us who are complacent, there is also order that goes to chaos. Help us to respond to it. Thank you for your love for us. Amen.